All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a day to gather together the way only members of your family can in the unity of the faith. We understand, Father, that you have called us from a variety of walks of life and a variety of conditions, all of which your word instructs us to remain in. For that is vital to our individual calling. We are so very grateful for your grace and love, for they are the immediate indicators of your persistent faithfulness to your children. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain humble to truth, no matter how difficult it may seem to resist the devil, no matter how often the flaming arrows are aimed at our peace with you. We pray also, of course, Father, this day for those veterans in our beloved country who have paid the price for our freedom. For as your word teaches us, freedom isn't free. We do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is titled, The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works. This is part 20. And as I was preparing this morning, all I could think about is that I love grace. Amen? I mean, raise your hand if you love the grace of God. Right? I mean, everybody's like, yeah, grace. It's overwhelming at times, frankly. Think about it. It's free. It's unadulterated. It's pure. It's abundant. It's the very expression of God's love for His children. I mean, what's not to love? It's literally impossible to express the fullness of our gratitude for all that God does. He just does so much. So I'm with you. I love grace. Love it. It's been an absolute blessing to be able to teach what he's had uh, being taught from this pulpit. And I hope you haven't missed out on grace itself, that God is grace, God is love, that even though some of these lessons are difficult, and they are, that even the difficult, in many ways, sometimes even more so, the difficult lessons are more gracious than the ones that seem to just be, ah, that's great. He's doing us a great service by challenging us So I love grace, and I know you do too, and the best any one of us can ever hope to do is to increase our understanding of it in this lifetime to whatever degree is possible. We're not going to understand all that he does for us. That's impossible. That endeavor alone is enough to excite us permanently. I often wonder about why people aren't excited about the spiritual life, aren't excited about reading their Bibles, aren't excited about getting up in the morning, aren't excited about giving the opportunity, the very special commission on their lives to spread the gospel 
Why wouldn't someone be permanently excited by those prospects alone? Why are so many Americans especially excited about their jobs or their families or their kids or their animals or their homes or all these other details of life? But somehow, when it comes to the Word of God, they're not that excited. It's incredible. And I believe it has everything to do with perspective. And so the Spirit's been, by grace, trying to give us the right perspective so that we are permanently excited about getting up in the morning. I mean, Sundays to me are my favorite day. Absolute hands-down favorite day. Because of this. I mean, it's the only day of the week that we gather together first thing in the morning and, and start our day with the inspired Word of God. I mean, how better a way to start your day? And I know many of you have made it a habit, and I certainly would encourage you all to make it a habit. Just read the Bible in the morning before anything. Wake up 10 minutes earlier. Go to bed instead of having that last sip of wine. No, seriously. You know the one that gives you just enough hangover in the morning that you hit the clock, the, the snooze button an extra couple of times? Instead of doing that thing, why don't you, you know, be an adult and say, nope, I want to get up in the morning with a clear head and a good conscience and excited about being able to read the Bible. That's how you should want to start your day. Now, with that said, <clears throat> a 20-part series. Now, we're in deep. I mean, 20 parts is... A lot. 20 parts. A 20-part series on grace and works requires consistent attention and concentration. Consistent. If you've proven yourself neither consistent nor concentrating, you are missing out on some of the greatest things a pastor can ever hope to teach you in Scripture. That breaks my heart. <clears throat> I know it happens, but for you that are neither consistent or concentrating, you're missing out. That's the best I can tell you. You are also less likely to understand the devices of your great enemies, namely Satan, the world, and your own flesh. If you're inconsistent, if you're not concentrating, if you're lackadaisical, um, your enemies are going to get the best of you. These are the great offensive strategists, Satan, the world, and your own flesh. These are the great offensive strategists that are lined up against you in the spiritual life. As I wrote in yesterday's blog, yep, I write blogs. <laughs> the 2016 presidential election. The real tragedy, and I speak as a man, this is a quote from that blog, the real tragedy, I speak as a man, isn't who is or isn't elected president of the United States. The real tragedy is that many, quote, voters aren't voting for Jesus Christ. You think it's the end of the world the way this country's acting. But it seems not to be a problem at all that nobody seems to be voting anymore for Jesus Christ. In fact, 
these individuals continue to vote against him. That's perspective. As I've been teaching from this pulpit for a very long time now, all the Spirit's trying to give you is perspective. Up here on the board. This goes for young and old. If you get tied up in the details of life, for example, the election. Not the only thing, it just seems top of mind nowadays. If you get tied up in the details of life, you've opened the door to mass confusion in your soul. Why? Because you lose perspective. You stop concentrating. You're no longer persistent. If you're so beat up from work, let's say, or whatever it is that you occupy your days with, if you're so beat up that you really do need that need, that extra glass of wine at night, you know the one that precludes you from getting up 10 minutes earlier, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour earlier to read your Bible? If that's your cycle, that's what the Spirit's getting at. You're going to miss out on the most important part of your day. And if you do that consistently, day after day after day, and you get into this sort of survival mode, and you just keep going day after day after day in what's supposed to be here, is something else, or what's supposed to happen here doesn't happen, and it's displaced by something else. You start your day with some other thing. What do you expect, is what the Spirit's saying. So he's trying to change your perspective. Let me give you some perspective on this, by the way. It's an unfair fight. (laughs) Satan is a super genius. You are not. He is incredible. The more I learn about the Word of God, and you've got to remember, I spend the predominant part of my days not just digging into the Bible, but thinking about the Bible, synthesizing, observing. And one of the gifts that I am completely convinced of that comes with this particular gift of pastor-teacher is the gift of discernment, being able to see things truly for what they are. Honestly, it's plain as day in most cases. Here's what I see. Satan is a super genius. You are not. If you think you can defeat him in your flesh, you are sadly mistaken. He will crush your spirit before you even realize what happened. He will crush you. Do you understand? If this is you, extra wine, no Bible. Extra wine, no Bible. Three more beers, six more beers, no reading the Bible. I'm hungover for three days now. I'm in a toxic state of dysfunction junction. What are you left with? What does the Word of, what does the word of God say? Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine. Do not what? Be dissipated. What's that all about? If you're dissipated, you can't be what we would call be filled, be influenced The wind in your sails is no longer God the Holy Spirit Himself. It's your flesh. If that's you on the open sea, you're going, and Satan's going, and you wonder why you're so miserable and capsized most days and fighting with your wife or your husband or your kids or even your dog or your boss at work, whatever you're fighting with, you're kicking stuff, you're throwing stuff, you're miserable, you're blaming everybody else for your problems, the president-elect maybe, you're blaming everybody but yourself. And God the Holy Spirit saying, hey, what's going on here? 
well, let's stop this whole train right now. Let's reevaluate where we're at right now. I'm going to tell you this straight up, says the Spirit. Satan is a genius, and he's way smarter than you. And his strategies go way deeper and are much more ancient than you will ever be. He predates you. Do you understand? Satan is a super genius. You are not. If you think you can defeat him in your flesh, you are sadly mistaken. He will crush your spirit before you even realize what happened. The only way to defeat, the Bible says, resist. The only way to resist him even is through the power of God. And God says, I'll give you the word and I'll give you my spirit. I'll give you a new creature if you're saved. I'll make you a new creature, in other words. And I'll give you these provisions. But without them, you're dead in the water. He's going to crush you. Because you're not able to resist him. I mean, even, I think it was uh, Michael, the archangel, said, the Lord rebuke you. And you're not anywhere near Michael's power. You might say, <clears throat> but how does an angel who I cannot even see manage to outsmart, to outsmart me, to crush me, and steal my peace? Because that's what he's after. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.14. 2 Corinthians 11.14. How does Satan do this? How does he steal your peace, your contentment? I mean, if you're having one of those or your life seems to be dominated lately of malcontent or misery or what have you, lack of peace, well, listen up. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. This is how he does it. It's your drinking buddies. No, it doesn't say that. But it could. It truly could. It's your buddies at work. It's your fantasy football buddies. It's your shopping girlfriends. <laughs> right? It's your whoever that is that you're fellowshipping with in the world. He's no dummy. You're not that attractive of a person. You're not. You're only attractive because you're prey. Put a, a helpless mouse in front of a, a, a boa constrictor and all of a sudden, that's the most attractive thing. Now, is anybody in there? Well, mice are kind of cute, but you know what I mean. Suppose you hated mice. Mice on their own, eh, but that's a meal. All of a sudden, that's the most attractive thing on the planet. That's all the, the serpent can see. Even though it's, a, you know, possibly a vile, disease-ridden creature, who knows? But all of a sudden, you're the most attractive prey. You're the most attractive thing because you're that serpent's prey. Well, where's the serpent? I don't see a serpent. I don't see Satan appear as a serpent. Do you? No. Well, what does the Scripture say? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as serpent, or servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So ask yourselves, if Satan's a genius, and he is, 
do you really think he's so stupid to try to pick a fight with you on God's terms? Do you think he's interested in having or picking a fight with you on God's terms? I mean, do you really think he's going to advertise what he's doing in your life? Do you really think he's going to announce his strategy to you? Or do you think he's going to remain the serpent that he truly is, hiding out under rocks and striking out before you even realize you've wandered into a cobra's den? To our previous point, if you get tied up in the details of life, you've opened the door to mass confusion in your soul. So, our only defense is to not open the door. That's the point on the board. It's an unfair fight. You're not going to win with that serpent. Satan is a super genius. You are not. If you think you can defeat him in your flesh, you are sadly mistaken. He will crush your spirit before you even realize what happened. The only way to defeat him is through the power of God, which is the Word and the Spirit. That's it. And if you're on dysfunction junction, guess what you do not have? So let us gain a little perspective directly from Scripture. Go to Proverbs 4.25. Proverbs 4.25. I know this isn't, you know, some new revelation for most of you, but it's perspective that needs to circle back with us every so often. Grace is magnificent, and it's always available to us. But we have to be humble. Proverbs 4.25 Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. All I can think about is, you know, you're on the, quote, narrow road, right? And Satan and your enemies have like literally the most attractive things to the left and to the right as you're trying to, you know, trying to stay focused. And as an ADD victim, sufferer, uh, that's my life, right? It's hard for me to stay focused straight ahead. Everything's like, oh, 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 I like vanilla. You know, it's like, oh. So it's like this. And all I can think about is how attractive Satan makes things in this life, which you just get diverted all the time. And uh, I remember when I, used to, when I was learning how to fly airplanes, and one of the things was it, it was the weirdest thing. If you were flying under the hood, which means they would block your vision, you just fly by instruments, and if you happen to like tilt your head or this kind of thing, you wouldn't realize it, but you'd start going like this. You ever notice some people walk that way? They'd be like, oh, look at that, and they'd run you over. They'd like run right in front of you. Like, Come on! It's like, can't you like look and stay on the straight? Nope. Or people drive, you know, oh, look at that. And they're like, whoop, whoop. Same thing. The idea is to get you distracted. Well, look at the Bible says, nice and clear. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all the ways will be established. Do not turn to the left nor to the right. Turn your foot from evil. So I was reflecting on this, and you might be shocked to hear this, but this actually happens to me not so much anymore, but, you know, when I go through my own epic battles in life, let's say, which I've had several since I opened up the ministry, um, 
Reflect on this. All of you should be able to relate. Ever been driving to church and had the sudden desire to just turn around? Or t- <laughs> DJ! Just kidding. You know, you have this sudden desire to just, you know, turn around or take a premature turn to something else? Everybody's like, nope. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Ephesians 6, 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Bible calls those moments flaming arrows, temptations. And they're not always from us even. They can be from Satan, his angels, the world system, just thoughts, a distraction, right? Driving to church, a new beer garden. It's like legitimate German beer. That's what we call a flaming arrow. Flaming arrows include those thoughts that are antagonistic to God's will for you. For example, a flaming arrow could be that little voice in your head saying, you know, turn around. You know you'd rather have a beer or go shopping or, you know, just this once or just this one last time. I know it's wrong, but, or, well, if I just bury the body in the sand like Moses did, Maybe nobody will ever find out, and God will be cool with that. After all, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? Oh, nobody's ever wanted to choke somebody out? I'm the only jerk? The fact that you didn't laugh at that scares me. Because that means you're, like, serious about it. You know, I'm like, ha, oh, that's hilarious, right? Everybody's like... I could, now i got to go stop. we got two and a half acres here. i got to start checking for mounds. These are all examples of flaming arrows. Thoughts. You, come on, people. Come on. Let's face it. Some of the thoughts that go through our heads are so vile and so disgusting and so despicable, you have to say, where did that even come from? We might say that's a flaming arrow. But these examples I give you, they're not the only kind. For example, a flaming arrow might entice you to worry about the details of life far more than you ought to, like Martha did, as described in one of my other recent blog entries titled, Don't Be a Martha. Go to Luke 10.41. Luke 10.41. That's a flaming arrow as well. Well, if you go to church on a Tuesday and a Thursday night or these Bible studies that seem to be happening on Wednesdays, well, you're not, going to be able to, you're not going to be able to attend to these other details of life. You know, the ones that are, I guess, apparently more important than learning the Word of God or fellowshipping or encouraging each other, as long as it's called today. I guess, apparently, your life is more important. The details of your life are somehow more important than those things. You know, the grace of God, because that's what that is. 
That's the grace of God. But you see, as I've been teaching, and everybody likes to point fingers at the unbelievers, as I've been teaching, not everybody likes all the grace of God, do they? They don't like that the grace of God interrupts their details of life. They say, well, that bald guy needs to change the times to accommodate me. What have I been saying about grace? Grace does not accommodate man. If God says, this is what it's... This is what I have in store for you. Boom, 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 boom. And I don't mess up. Then you have to reconcile that in your own soul with God. Luke 10, 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. Do you see that? Who said that? The Lord. Is that not read in your Bibles? Yeah. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary, who had been doting on Christ, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. There's some perspective for you. There's really only one thing that matters. And if that's not in check, if you're in some dysfunction junction, some messed up cycle that keeps saying no to grace, no to grace, no to grace, then you're like Martha and you're missing out. And that's what he was trying to tell Martha in love. It's not like it's a hostile scene there. He's saying, you're worried about so many things, Martha. But only one thing, is, one thing matters. Perspective requires clarity up here on the board. If your vision is clouded by anxiety, the details of life, or the wrong priorities, you won't be able to see things for what they truly are. I always think of a, you know, a muddied windshield. You're looking out and you're driving the road of life and it's muddy. You won't be able to see things for what they truly are. If you are handicapped this way, it's easy for your enemies to lead you astray. I mean, a good visual is, if this thing's completely mudded over, where do you have to look out? The sides. And what's out the sides? The Bible just said in Psalms, don't look left or right, keep straight ahead. But I can't see straight ahead. Why is that? Because I'm in dysfunction junction. Because I keep saying no, no, no to His grace. No, no, no. I prioritize my life, my work, my family, my kids, my dogs, my sports, my television time, my internet time, my gaming, my whatever it is in your life that's ridiculous, you're prioritizing over the grace of God. And what does that say? Your actions speak so loud, I don't hear a word you're saying. What does that say? What does your life prove to you? It proves that you have your priorities screwed up. It proves that there's a reason why you're a miserable crank. It proves that you're an arrogant, <laughs> wonderful young lad. That's what I meant to say. If you are handicapped, it's, your, it's easy for your enemies to lead you astray. Psalm 119, 105. Remember, as Ephesians 5 says, the truth is light. And unless we have light, we cannot see. Go to Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, 105. 
I think of David, I think of the other writers. What did they value more than anything on earth? The Word. What did they meditate on? The Word. Well, what do you meditate on, honestly? And I'm not talking about after you've, you know, completely exhausted yourself with the details of life. I'm talking about what is it that you meditate when you get up out of bed in the morning? What's the first thing you think about? Getting rid of your hangover? Apologizing to your friends or your spouse for being a jackass once again? No, I'm serious. When you wake up in the morning, what's the norm for you? What's the norm in your household? What do you think it's going to be? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to start walking that straight and narrow path that we began service with this morning? You want to keep looking straight ahead? Well, you've got to have light. You've got to have some clarity. There's got to be light in your life. There has to be the Word. The Word is the Logos, right? The Logos is the light. The light came into the world, but men rejected Him. Where do you stand on this? Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Psalms, of course, are poetic. So what about application? Well, as often as the case, we see or we can seek out what Paul has to say. Go to 1 Corinthians 6.20. Paul was often a no-frills kind of guy, right? And you might say, well, why was that? You know why that was? Because he was a fighter. I can relate to him a lot, and I'm not obviously elevating myself at all. It's just the calling that I have. I think any good shepherd nowadays, especially in this country, has to be like Mike Tyson almost. Honest to goodness, or a cage fighter, probably more appropriately a cage fighter. The only difference is the world can gouge eyes and bite and hit you in the groin and do all kinds of crazy things. Paul was a fighter, and he wasn't afraid, like he said, to complete the good fight, to finish the course. So he was very practical, whereas Psalms are more poetic. You know, people love the poetic. You know, how often do you see you know, uh, Paul on posters as opposed to like Proverbs and Psalms. It's always like, you know, Psalms and an eagle. And mountains, right? And Proverbs this. and right? It's this poetic stuff, but nobody pays attention. It just sounds good. But then when, when the Holy Spirit says, okay, well, let's go brass tacks now. You know, there's a thing called life. I mean, that's all great. It's great. It's like going to a seminar, right? Wow! I'm so pumped up. What do I do now? No idea. Oh! So it's just like, you know, you're like, oh, you walk out, and then like a week later, you're like, well, I was all jazzed up. I have no idea how to, how to complete this thing that I'm so excited about. But we actually have the Word of God. So what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians, Mr. Practical, 6.20. <clears throat> For you have been bought with a price. Just think about that. You didn't save yourself. You've been bought with a price. Thank God for His grace. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Not yourself. Not by the details of life. Glorify God in your body. Hold that thought. Here's an analogy for you. Okay? And I want you to really think practically right now. 
If I told you that I know for a fact that someone is at your residence right now, right now, stealing everything you own, is it fair to say that most of you, based on your trust in me, would spring up, race home, and guard those things of value? I mean, if you truly believed what I just said, I'm not kidding you. Someone's at your house right now, stealing everything you own. Most would be like, Phew. Then let me ask you this. <clears throat> Why don't we all trust God when His Word teaches us the following through the very words of His Son, Jesus Christ, up here on the board? John 10.10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Why don't we trust Him then? You'll trust a man, a flawed man, and you'll go run home and protect your belongings. But there's a much greater thief out there that wholly desires to destroy you, to crush you, to smash you to smithereens, so you can't fulfill you know, the most important things in your life, like spreading the gospel. You know, there's an enemy you have, a thief, that's willing to steal all those things from you, including the peace, the very peace that Christ Himself promised us? He's intent on stealing those things from you? Do you realize that thief exists, but yet nobody wants to listen to God? So you might ask, okay, that's cool, but what does this thief that Jesus speaks of steal exactly? If he's not stealing my stuff, what is he out to steal? Up here on the board, I'll give you some perspective again. Your enemies aren't interested in stealing your personal belongings or even something as temporal as the presidency of the United States. They are interested in stealing your peace so that you are too debilitated to spread the gospel. Again, they're not interested in these details of life. They want to steal your peace. They want to dominate. What is Tashuka? Sin is crouching at the door. Sin wants to dominate you. You see? And when that happens, you lose out on even the, the, the correct motivation, the full energy to go out and complete the thing that you've been, frankly, preserved, redeemed for and left here on earth to do, which is spread the gospel. But how many people think that way? Most people get out of bed and they, they look at their, uh, you know, their, I was going to go like this for the smartphone, but most of them are like this now. Right? And they say, oh, this is what my schedule looks like. You know, I was, I was thinking about reading my Bible like, you know, the pastor said, but there's no time. Look, I, I hit the snooze button one too many times. I'll do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow becomes tomorrow. And next thing you know, here we go again. Here we go again. They want to, your enemies want to debilitate you. I've been giving our beloved country a lot of thought lately, especially being a veteran and a father of a war vet. 
And I can't help but think about the Lord's words to the seven churches in Revelation. What did the Lord tell John to write to those in the church at Laodicea? Go to Revelation 3.15. Revelation 3.15. Revelation 3.15. I guess I think about it from a vet's perspective because, on, you know, when we're celebrating Veterans Day, etc., because the question always comes up, well, what did I fight for? Or what did I serve for? Hmm. What did I serve to protect? What was in my heart? Revelation 3.15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, that means tepid, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now here's where it gets interesting. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, what he's saying is those things that you're clinging to are the antithesis of how I want to clothe you. The details of life don't clothe you. I clothe you. You're not going to take any of that to heaven. None of that's going to remain. I mean, some people spend inordinate amounts of time just on their bodies even. No, for... Because that's a DJ. Look at him. He's next next week's publication of GQ. He's there. <laughs> no, I'm serious. How much time do people spend just on their looks? It's fall. Honest to goodness, it's fall. I mean, I believe you should be in, sh- you know, keep yourself in shape to be healthy so that you have energy. I believe in that. But these abominations of the human form that we post on you know covers of cosmopolitan or these awful worldly magazines that just entrench young women and even men because there's men now that want to be women you know down and say if you don't look like this and everybody buys the lie you don't believe me we were just talking about this before class now i'm a man right and i got this tie okay Nice tie. You know what it says on the back? It says Jones of New York. Now, if I bought this at Dillard's, it'd probably be 40 bucks, I think, roughly. Somewhere between 30 and 50 bucks. I don't shop at Dillard's. Right? I got this at Marshall's for like $7.99. But I said to DJ this morning, I said, yeah, it's a nice tie, and that's why I bought it. But here's the deal. If it didn't say this, I could have got it at Marshall's for three. So even I'm an idiot. Right? And I'm thinking, ah, oh, man, I saved like 30 bucks on a tie. Yeah, but you're still lost for to idolatry. Because there's nothing different about this tie. I mean, look at it. It's not silk or anything. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not, like it's, it's not like it's better material than the one that Stafford made for Sears or whoever, it's really not. It's just a, this little tag that nobody even sees. But I know it's there. Jones of New York. 
right? I'm serious. How much, is, how much are, the, are Americans willing to pay for vanity, for idolatry, for name tags? Honest to God, how much are Americans willing to pay? What do you think the Lord's saying here in Revelation 3.17? He's like, you don't even know it. You have that beautiful tie on, but you're naked. You have that wonderful new dress or that awesome new um, suit or something. I don't know. Men, women. You have your new collagen lips. <laughs> no, I'm being serious, right? Whatever it is that you think, whatever. Is that what they stick in? That's what they stick in lips, right? Collagen? I don't know. I got that from Lois. <laughs> Bill likes full lips. What are you going to say? You know what I'm saying, right? America's ridiculous. And, and we're fretting over stuff that has nothing really to do or have any eternal value whatsoever. So here's the point. Satan's not interested in stealing your worldly wealth. In fact, if you're paying attention to how every so-called promotion you've been handed has taken you further away from the undistracted devotion to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7.34, if you've been paying attention to the, how that's been going on in your own lives, then you know that Satan is often the one giving you those promotions, encouraging you to take, you know, one more step in the direction that leads away from such devotion to him. Your temptations are really no different than the ones he tempted Jesus with in Matthew 4. Your only hope, then, is to apply the Word of God to your own situation and as Scripture states up here on the board in James 4, 7, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, most of you, most Americans are hand in hand. And most Americans are really adept at justifying their own ridiculousness. Honest to goodness. And you know it, and I know it. And I'm not saying I'm any worse at it than you are. I'm getting better. I was a lot worse before, and... Thank God for His grace that He's delivered me from that bondage. But I look out and I see what I see. And that's my discernment. You can disagree with me, but you're just playing a game. Because I could really take my mic off, walk up to every single one of you and say, in this room, say, why do you have that shirt on? How much did that cost? How much did that cologne cost that you're wearing? How much did your deodorant cost? Do you really need that kind of deodorant that smells that way? I'm serious. Why are you wearing sneakers? Why are you not, going, why are you not wearing Keds? Why are you not wearing, uh, you know, britches that cost $3 instead of 100 Or bras or whatever. I'm not getting, I'm getting weird because it's weird. No, it's really weird. People are like, hey, hey, enough already. Right? No, seriously. Okay, you ready for this one? Okay, this is the one that always kills me. Watches. Rolex. How much does a Rolex cost? Ten grand? Right? Something like that? Some more? Some five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar Rolexes, right? Because, you ready for this? They only lose one second a year. Yeah, but I have a Casio that loses two. Am I really gonna miss that second? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss the nine thousand nine hundred and you know eighty dollars difference. That I could have maybe, I don't know, donated to the church or helped somebody out in need. Do you get what I'm getting at? Don't tell me it's about 
you're, you value the one second of time so much that $10,000 is worth it to you. No, you're grotesque. You haven't been able to resist the devil in that area of your life yet. Just admit it. That's all he's saying. He's saying you're weak. Join the crowd. But we have to have clarity. He's wiping, you know, the windshield wipers on. That's all. He, uh, you know, you're like, oh, man, I can't see out there. Oh, my God, you see the new Rolex? <laughs> right? And then that day or the next week, the Lord says, hey, Mr. Pastor, tell him, hey, tell him you got a trip to India. And you're going to go help out some really needy people. Not the kind of, you know, tell them that. And they go, oh, I would have. But look, you can look at my bank account for yourself. It's empty. Yeah, how did it get empty? <laughs> Don't look at the watch when I did this. What's that? Oh, oh, that thing. Yeah. Resist the devil. These things aren't posters. They're not posters. We don't go, yay! And then we go right back to our lives. And the practical side of our lives is garbage. And frankly, horrifically, some people aren't even saved. And that's the norm for them because they have no desire at all to resist the devil. They only have a desire to embrace him go to church, look good for mommy and daddy or grandma and grandpa or Uncle Sue and Uncle Jimmy or something, and then go back to their lives. And they're a fake. They're phony. They don't have a love for Christ. They have a love for themselves. And they have every intention of keep on buying Rolexes, keep on drinking until the wee hours of the morning, keep on saying no to the grace of God, keep on living horrible lives. Don't you dare think I'm being legalistic at all. This is what Jesus said. That's called fruit. <laughs> therefore, submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, the point the Spirit's making here, specifically in light of the presidential election, even, and Veterans Day in America, is verse 17. Let's read it again. He says, because you say, internalize that, because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, that's the antithesis. He's laying it down. This is the person whom God vomits out of his mouth. So the Lord tells the Laodicean, Laodicean church to what? Repent. That's the beauty about still being alive. Even as believers, we can repent. Repent and acquire from him the wealth that Satan and your enemies can never steal from you. So personally, I feel like screaming at Americans. Repent. And follow Jesus. Look at verse 18. He says, I advise you, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that you and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in Isav to anoint your eyes, so that guess what? You may see. Up here on the board. Isn't that what we're after? Isn't that what perspective is up here on the board? That you may see the Spirit's been trying to open your eyes to the whole truth about your life. He's telling you to drop any vestiges, that means remnants, leftovers, of the self-life you might be clinging to, to stop fellowshipping with the world, and to quit playing games. That's what he's telling you. Quit playing games. 
This brings us back to the start of Thursday's class, which really brought it home because the Spirit wanted us to focus on the little things. Now, this changes things for a lot of people. They're like, but I'm generally kind of going in this direction. I'm generally kind of doing things right. But what about the little things? What about all the little things? We looked at Luke 16 and 19. It's often easy to walk in the general direction of goodness and be unkempt spiritually. It's analogous to a person who's able to keep a job but shows up consistently hungover, filthy, etc. Luke 16.10 says, He was faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. I mean, if you're a disaster... And you might be the best person for a job, let's say, but you're a, a disaster. Every other aspect of your life is a disaster. Do you think that person is going to say, I'm going to hire this one? They can't even take care of themselves. Yeah, but they have this thesis they wrote that's amazing, or this dissertation that they wrote in college. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Great, but they're personally a disaster. No discipline, no self-control, no nothing, no faithfulness, no pressing on, no perseverance, no leadership, no nothing, no love for others, no nothing. They're a disaster. I'm not hiring that person. So I guess the little things actually do matter. Do you understand? The business analogy comes up. That's not me. I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said. Go do business. He's the one who brought up the business analogy, right? Servant-master relationship is a business relationship. Master says, do this, go hold the crops. Okay, for what reason? So that my business prospers. So don't think I'm being weird. Again. Right? It's these little things. Let's face it. This is going to sound really weird. Okay? Say you have an interview with somebody. You're going to hire somebody, right? And they're really qualified and such, and then they turn around and they are literally filthy behind their ears. And there's dirt and filth and everything. I'm talking about for maybe a, you know, like an office job or something like that. And so don't get crazy all, you know. And you're like, I don't know if I, I can't have that because my customers are going to freak out. That might preclude you from hiring them, rightfully or wrongfully. Right? Is that not a little thing? Yeah. Couldn't see it when they were facing you. It wasn't until they turned around. They showed you the rest of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are certain things that there's really no excuse for. There's a certain tidiness. There's a certain cleanliness in the spiritual life. What does the, what does the Word of God do? What do we say it does? It what over us? Washes over us. Do you understand? It washes over us, which means all the nooks and crannies get cleaned as well. Right? No Portuguese showers. Oh! I'm Portuguese, so I can say it. It's not going to work. That's dressing up the pig. Oh, she's gone somewhere. Oh, she's off. She's off gallivanting. Said she's looking for a new purse or something. With a tag. Something about a couple of C's or something. I don't know. 
What did Jesus say? He said, he was faithful in very little thing, is faithful also in much. Did I say that? Did I say that? No, Jesus Christ said it. So what do you want me to say? I'm teaching what's in the Bible. The one who's faithful in little things is also faithful in much. So if they're a disaster, you can't give them a whole lot of responsibility. Guess why? Because they can't even take care of themselves. Does that make sense? I didn't say that. He was unrighteous in very little thing, is unrighteous also in much. Right? I'm not going to give a, a I'm not going to give a financial advisor hundred thousand dollars as if I had it to give it to him. But suppose I did hundred thousand dollars invest on me if the guy cheats on his taxes. No, seriously, what are you going to do with my money then? Am I going to get indicted? No, for real. It's the little things, right? And that's what Jesus said. You know, one of the one of the um, posters that I really have enjoyed seeing over the years is, you know, the one about integrity. Integrity is the, means you do the same thing when no one's looking. It doesn't matter if anyone's looking or not. That's true integrity. Yeah. And a lot of times that's the little things. Well, no one's going to see behind my ears, so I'm not going to take the time to do it. No one's going to see that I'm cheating this way or that way. Um, but the Lord does. The Lord pays particular attention to the little things. That's what Scripture states. So you have to ask yourself up here on the board, again, why does the Lord care about all the little things? I mean, it seems almost, you know, like I said on Thursday, picky youn, right? Like, kind of like, geez, man, this is tough enough. Why do you got to look at all the little things? I guess because he's perfect. He has the right to assess us to, to judge us accordingly? Sounds right to me. All right, concentrate for a moment. I'm just going to try to sum up some of this, and then we're going to press on. The little things. <clears throat> Why does the Lord care about all the little things? Simple. It's because He understands the erosive nature of our enemies. They tempt us to leave this or that small detail for later, to give in to worldly pressure, to intoxicate ourselves, literally, figuratively, to intoxicate ourselves, to numb the convicting ministry of the Spirit while doing so. And, to continue, before we know it, all the little things and all the micro-adjustments away from God's will for us and all the steps we've taken in a perverted direction add up to our being way off course. That's how it goes. So the little things matter. Not just holistically, the way I just spoke about for the last 10 minutes, but also specifically, practically. I often wonder about that. Like, people that are unkempt spiritually, I mean all the little things even. Let me rephrase it. People who I see, who I discern as being kept, as being um, together, who do the little things in their spiritual life, they're the ones who I see prospering with blessing, with abundant, overflowing contentment and peace. 
But then on the flip side, the people who, you know, I don't know, just go to church or something like that, just to net it out, or they don't have that same result. They don't. So this is what the Lord's saying. That really, honestly, He wants us to be almost... I mean, is it fair to say a soldier is professional? Right? I've been thinking a lot about this. You know what He wants? He wants professionalism. If I was to ask you right now, in a sentence or a couple of, in a paragraph, write down what you think professionalism is. I'd be willing to bet that it includes. And if you saw it, what does it look like? Right? I'd be willing to bet that you would talk about and maybe draw even what, or describe even what a professional looks like even, figuratively as well as literally speaking. You expect certain things of professionalism, correct? I mean, hey, um, I just got elected to the, the President of the United States. Well, Mr. President, you get to choose between these two Secret Service men to guard your bedroom at night. This one looks like a duffel bag, and this one looks sharp as a tack. His gig lines, I mean, things are poly. He's like, pew, pew, right? Everything else the same. Who are you going to choose? Duffel bag? No, I'm serious. Or Mr. Professional. You don't know what they could do. This guy could be a killer, and this guy could be a wimp. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Professionalism means something. We're all professional enlisted soldiers for Christ. Professionalism means something. It means, yeah, if the Bible says keep your gig line straight, then keep your, keep your gig line straight. If the Bible says you represent Jesus Christ as an ambassador, you're not even from this world. You're an ambassador of the Lord in heaven. And you're, I sent you down. I don't want a bunch of duffel bags. Oh, well, that sounds like you're being... No, I'm not being legalistic. He says the little things. I didn't say that. He wants professionals. Most people are duffel bags. It's true. Oh, and by the way, as I was thinking this way, <clears throat> especially those still bellyaching about the elections, as a side note, quit whining. Seriously. Just stop it. Some will argue for their flesh with, you know, but life's not fair. We had a nice discussion about what fair even is on Thursday. What is fair? And who are you to say what fair is? This is fruit of asking bad questions. The better question to ask is, is God righteous in what he does with each of us as individuals? And unless you want to denounce the, the very essence of the sovereign God of the, of the universe, then the answer is yes, because he's perfect righteousness. You see, the more entrenched a person is in the world, the less, the less pressure they receive from their enemies. Some of you like saying, this is the one that always kills me. It's like, um, I'm great. Yeah, but your theology is completely perverted, completely off track. But I'm great. Yeah, no, that's because Satan doesn't want anything. Satan's like, I don't have to even bother with that one. 
Seriously, they're hiding out in a cave. They're not fighting the good cause of Christ. They're over there in a cave living for themselves, having little parties and patting each other on the back. Of course they're left alone. It's folks like us that stand up for Jesus Christ, that stand up for the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that get attacked. The more entrenched a person is in the world, the less pressure they receive from their enemies. However, if that person begins making positive decisions for Christ, the world crashes down on them, including the people around them. That's right. You start making decisions for Christ, for truth, your family, your friends, your relatives, your whoever, they're going to crash down on you unless they too are walking in that direction. They're going to crash down on you. Some of you are like, but I like my family and my friends. They don't give me any hassle. I guess, yeah, that, why do you think that is? Because you're not offensive to them. You've joined their club. Seriously, you've joined their club. He said, I don't even care that you don't want the truth. I don't even care that you don't give a crap about Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, the one who redeemed me, who paid the price for me. I don't care. I'm not even going to try to evangelize you. I'm just going to befriend you. Because every time I spend time with Pastor Ed or the likes of him or people that like him, the world comes crashing down on me. And I lose all my friends and my, you know, my worldly happiness and my flesh is miserable and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because these same folks might complain about, quote, undeserved suffering when it's really totally deserved. They are just being weak. For example, I have several old high school friends, and I use the term lightly now, only because, not because of me, because of them. I can't even tell you how many friends I've lost because of my standing up for Jesus Christ. They don't even talk to me anymore. I'm not kidding you. I'll email them, I'll call them, I'll text them. They don't even answer anymore. It's actually rude. Why? I'm the same guy except for Christ. What's the problem? Anyways, I have several old high school friends that I reach out to every so often and see how they are doing. And I often make a point of asking them about their spiritual walk. Probably why they don't answer my calls. <laughs> like, oh, God, he's going to ask me about Jesus again. You know? And their responses are always the same. You know, it's something like this. Well, I've been so busy. And, you know, the kids and the sports. And, the, and then I get, like, Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Right? After that, I'm like, oh, here we go. What they are really saying, and this is what breaks my heart, what they are really saying, and tragically, the message they are sending their own children is that life's more important than Christ. The details of life are more important than Christ. That's the message that they are sending, even to their kids. And their so-called reasoning in support of such messaging is that, you know, I don't know, nobody else understands their life. Somehow they have this unique life, and nobody else can, I mean, the guy, the bald guy doesn't understand it, whatever. But what I hear is simple. I hear I don't trust God. I hear my human rationalism has stymied me. I hear 
I lack perspective on life itself. That's what I hear. I mean, do you, do you dare even put um, a soccer field as a higher priority than Jesus Christ himself? Do you dare do that? Because that's what you just did. So they lack perspective, in a nutshell, up here on the board. Is there any, or is there ever really only one variable in a life equation? Does God willingly crush, let's say, one of his own for one reason, or multiple, many of which man has no idea about? Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not, but every time there are things we don't know. There's some perspective for you. Sometimes we suffer and we know why, at least in part. Sometimes we don't know why at all. But in every case, there are things we don't know. In every case, we don't know everything about how God's doing something in our lives, possibly for the benefits of others even. We don't know that. How, would, how could you possibly know that? How could you possibly know that? You can't. But God does. So if you're one of those people that's in dysfunction junction, let's say, and your drinking buddies are unbelievers, what's the message you're sending them? What's the message you're sending them? It's okay. I'll be like you. My life, my self-absorption is more important than my relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what you've just done for them in a nutshell? You've just proven that you're a farce. You've just proven to them what they wanted to hear. They want nothing more than for you to walk out as an ass and prove to them that you're nothing in Christ. You're no better than them in Christ. You've got nothing on them. You've just sent a huge message. You might as well rent a site, uh, a Cessna with a flag behind it, said, I don't really live for Christ. These are painful, aren't they? But this is what the Word of God teaches us. He wants us to have the right perspective. Greater love is known than this, that they lay down their life for what? There you go. Why is it so quiet? Half of you were thinking self. I mean, in your actions, not your words. I know everybody knows that passage. And you, you want to make a poster for you? Make a nice little sparrow. And it'll, it'll bring a worm from your nest to someone else's nest. What a punk, huh? Hey, you try seeing the things I see. Deuteronomy 8.3, up here on the board. He humbled, and ah, we looked at this Hebrew word on Thursday, to oppress, to humiliate him. You mean, gee, you mean he's going to humiliate me possibly? Yep. He's going to let you, how about this one? He's going to let you humiliate yourself even. When you come crashing down and you're humiliated and you're all distraught, he's going to say, are you ready now? Because your word, your, 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 uh, your method didn't work, obviously. He humbled them. He let them be hungry even, that he might make them understand. 
God uses whatever means necessary to impress his will and purpose upon man's heart. Whether it is accommodating to man's sensibilities or not, this is true grace. Man always has some idea about what grace is. Well, grace should accommodate me because grace sounds like a friendly word. Sometimes it's really friendly and sometimes it's uh, not so friendly. Sometimes it says, well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes it says, uh, bend over. I'm going to whack you with this stick. I'm going to cane you. And it's going to hurt. But I discipline those whom I love. So it's no less grace. It's just different. Stated slightly more practically, God will humble us if we aren't already humbled. This is grace that is designed to produce something, humility, that opens us up to even more grace, and so on. That's Matthew 13, 12, James 4, 6. God gives grace to who? The humble. But here's where the lies and the counterfeit doctrines sow discord in our souls. For example, up here on the board, I just mentioned this. You know, grace isn't always nice. It's just not. It's not always nice. Was it by grace that God himself was pleased to crush the innocent lamb, our Lord and Savior? Was that grace? Oh, yeah. But ask Jesus how nice that was by man's standards. Ask Jesus how, how it felt to hang uh, naked on a cross and die that way. An excruciating physical death even, not even mentioning the spiritual separation part, which is unfathomable. How nice was that grace? But yet we propose as man that all grace is somehow nice and accommodating us? Otherwise it's not grace? Man has pigeonholed grace into a one-sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's own deep predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. That's why, literally, people will tell me, to my face, we have a different God. Your God can't be my God because a loving God would never do that to an infant. So your God, the one that you talk about, isn't my God. That's what they'll tell me, to my face. And then they'll turn around and go, I'm a Christian too. And I'll say, no, you're not. Because if that's where your theology ends up, that ridiculous perversion about God's grace, then you know what the heck you're talking about. You have no idea what you're talking about. You are following the God of this world. And there are many so-called Christians, I am absolutely convinced of this, that are in that boat. Absolutely convinced of it. That's a problem. Because you say, oh, Americans, I am rich. I have need of nothing. See, man has pigeonholed grace into this one-sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. These are the inventions of man's flesh. This is a massive issue right now in the churches, my friends. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive even to those in the so-called Christian churches. And it's an abomination. 
to net it out up here on the board. The gospel is offensive. We know this. There's only one gospel that the flesh will ever be wholly offended by, the gospel of Jesus Christ. False gospels will always have something appealing to the flesh baked into them, always be based on perversions of God's grace in salvation even. Either going to try to add to salvation or subtract some of God's own grace from it. Why? To accommodate the flesh. Well, I need to have a little work in this. Well, we have options. Why, do they, why does this happen? We ended on Thursday evening by citing the underlying cause of why the true gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to many of those in the so-called Christian churches today. Why would that be? Because man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call it grace. It's incredible. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm serious. Man wants to go to church one time and be completely delivered. And if that doesn't happen, it can't be grace. So they go to the next church that says, come down the aisle. Oh, yeah. They got a rock band. This is unbelievable. They run, oh, you're all ecstatic. They're like, oh, my God, I got saved today. It's incredible. And a year later, they, they're like, I don't know. I don't even want to say. <laughs> they don't want God, though, that's for sure. That's man trying to say and impose his own will and try to redefine grace as accommodating to him. But you see, that's not God's grace at all. It's a perversion. God's grace accommodates His perfect righteousness to His glory. Now, we've got a little time left. I can't believe it. I cannot believe what time it is. That was the final piece, if you would, of the grace puzzle that the Spirit's been giving us on grace and works. Remember, it's part 20 of grace and works. He spent the lion's share of time on grace. Why? Because, like I've been saying, if you understand grace, then works is a layup. It's easy to understand works if you understand grace. You don't get confused about works unless you're confused about grace. So the standing question on the table from our most recent lessons is, why all the confusion about works, even the so-called ranks of Christianity? Why do some people add human works to the gospel and others subtract God's work from it? So here's a good place to start. Man is born egocentric because man thinks the world revolves around him. So much so that he supposes his own definition of salvation is the one that needs satisfying. The only way to construct such a salvation is to suppose his own definition for grace. And as grace goes, so goes his definition for what grace produces, namely works. This whole system is a perversion. Do you see? It starts with the gospel as the core and then it ripples out. And if you pervert something to the gospel, you're going to end up with some perversion about works because works are the result, the fruit of getting this right first and then having grace produce things in you throughout life. It's not hard once it's lined up that way, you know, like the Bible says it is. Our entry point for the work side of the grace and works topic has been up here on the board simply stated, any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. Fundamentally, if your version of grace doesn't include all facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. 
By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever, for that man cannot see out of darkness. Only the light from God can illumine and quicken man's perspective by grace. This is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. I mean, that's the starting point. Ask the right question, not are you saved, but what are you saved from even? Why would you say you're saved if you don't think you, you need saving in the first place? Because someone told me if I said I believed in Jesus Christ, I get to go to heaven. Yeah, but what do you believe about him? That he was? That he died on the cross? What about that? For some sins? I mean, there's some perversions say, well, he died for most sins, but if you're a murderer, you still go to hell. What? Wait a minute, what? Oh, you see, oh, you've got to do some digging. So it's not just enough to say to, the, to this person or that person, do you believe in Jesus? Are you saved? What are they going to say? Nope. They have a cross around their neck, which means nothing, by the way. What are they going to say? Of course I'm saved. Of course I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, what do you believe? You died for my sins. Awesome. All of them? Well, what? You mean, well, what? Either he did or he didn't. He didn't say, die, except for murder and suicide and smoking cigarettes. Right? He didn't say that. This is not in Scripture. If it was there, I would teach it. I swear to you. If he said murder, suicide, and cigarettes, I would teach it. <laughs> but he didn't say that, did he? He honestly didn't. Here's the deal. If we net it all out, Satan hates grace because it leaves no room for arrogance. Here's what Jesus said about his own gospel up here on the board. Jesus was perfectly gracious when he said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4.19 Likewise, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8.34 Both statements are equally gracious. Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. This was our entry point into works. If you're going to talk about works, you have to introduce the concept of a nature because that's what produces works. Your very nature has a desire, if you've been changed, to produce good works. That's all it wants to do. We know that Jesus Christ was flawless. And what did he do? Produced good works. Why? His nature was perfect. His nature was righteous. If I said to you, it's in your nature to go punch somebody, when you walk outside, you're probably going to punch somebody. If I say to you, it's in your nature to help somebody in need, chances are, when you see someone in need, what are you going to do? You're going to help them. Why? That's in your nature. What if your nature is perfect? What kind of fruit are you going to bear? Good or bad? Okay, okay. What's the problem? I don't want to get too, I'll get off on a sidebar there, but Jesus could never say anything inconsistent with his own nature. Hold that thought. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, 12. I'm going to accelerate a little bit. I'm almost out of time, but I want to get you, I want to get this. Hopefully you understand what the Spirit's been saying about grace and how works are a layup. Once you understand that God changed, gave you a very, a brand new nature. 
and it's consistent with the Lord's, who we all agree was perfect, who could only produce good fruit. Right? Right. Okay. 1 Corinthians 2.12. 12.2, sorry. 12.12. Did I say what did I say? 2.12. 2.2. Did I get bingo? No. B12. 1 Corinthians 12.12. For, e- <laughs> For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. We call it the baptism of the Spirit. We're placed in union with Christ, whether Jews or or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We are members then of the body of Christ. In fact, the Holy Spirit has baptized every believer into union with Christ. It's impossible for Jesus' perfect nature and man's to be baptized into union unless man is given, guess what? A brand new nature. Do you understand what I just said? Jesus' nature is perfect. We get baptized into union. Some supernatural thing happens at salvation. It's impossible unless our nature has been made new. Unless we're a brand new nature. Jesus' gracious words, By grace of salvation you have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. doesn't mean you as a whole person, which includes this thing, isn't going to be tempted away from the will of God. We know that happens. We're talking about the new nature itself, the new creature. You have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. Your old nature is just the opposite, hence Paul's own admission of his struggle between the two in Romans 7. Up here on the board, you either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, or you don't. Either you accept what plainly stated Scripture states, or you reject it. Let me just finish with one more Scripture. Go there quickly, 2 Corinthians 517, and I promise, I promise I'll quit. Oh, wait a minute. I got one more. Only because it's an extension of the next point. <laughs> See how I did that? 2 Corinthians 517. This is a good takeaway from this morning. All that good work on grace. Grace, we all say, I love God's grace. Well, If you love God's grace, come on, how can you not love the fact that he makes you a brand new creature? That's not something you can do on your own. The best you can hope to do in your flesh is dress up the piggy. Make it look good. Make it smell nice. You know, no, brand spanking new creature. Perfect. Perfect. The only thing perfect things can do is produce good works. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, saved, he is a what? There you go. I mean, come on, people. That's That's not an elaboration. That's not Pastor Ed pontificating. That's not me trying to come up with some unique, snazzy new doctrine. That is literally in the Word, the inspired Word of God. He is a new creature. What else would you like me to say? Would you like to say that God creates you flawed again? He said, this one's just a little better. Or this one's not new, it's a dress-up of the old one. No. 
what does Scripture say? He's a new creature. That's all right. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Here's the point, and then you see at the bottom that one last Scripture. The new creature. A true believer, a person who has been saved by grace through faith, has been made new. This new nature is a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. This is a grace gift, given at salvation or not at all. This is a grace gift. I love grace. You love grace? I mean, who else can give us a brain? Who else can make us new? This is a grace gift, given at salvation or not at all. It is not something a person chooses after being saved. For that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from sin. It is not something a person chooses after being saved. For that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from the problem statement. And then go to Romans 6.2, and then I'll show you a video, and we'll close almost on on time, what I would call on time, not that we have time constraints here. Romans 6, 2. Paul, in the midst of one of the great arguments about the vestiges of sin, um, people playing games with grace. Oh, I like this grace thing. So I can become licentious then? You mean I can, I can do God a favor by just saying, look at what a jackass I am. And by gr- the grace of God, I'm going to heaven. Someone's going to go run out in the street and punch people and say, you see what I just did? How vile is that, right? I'm going to go get drunk. I'm going to go be worldly for my whole life, supposedly, right? And that's going to show the people how gracious God is because he's still willing to save me. What the? That's a complete perversion. We call that licentiousness. That's, licentious means a license to sin. Grace is not a license to sin. So, if that makes sense to you, doesn't Romans 6, 2 make sense? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? What do you think Paul's saying right there? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If you're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ. Amen? Therefore, you cannot live in it. Food for thought. Food for thought. All right, guys, let's uh, cue up the video here.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for a time to reflect on the things that matter most in this world, and for a moment of peace and a warm embrace of your grace and love. 
Father, our hearts are open wide now, not just to those aspects of you that we may have understood even as infants in Christ, but now more so than ever, as your beloved Holy Spirit continues to teach us and minister to us. We are at a sensitive time even in our country, Father, this we know. There are so many lost, so many confused, so many focusing on all the wrong priorities. We pray especially today for our new president-elect, Donald Trump, that your will be done through him, and that the citizens of the United States find rest in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray especially for those in this country, past and present, that have laid down their lives in the military and its supportive branches, that they know that we appreciate all that they've chosen to do. But even more so, that they may have done good in your eyes, fighting for freedom, protecting the innocent, and looking after the weak. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.